Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Uh, it is Kalia and Dylan in the grapevine with you and I'm about to warm up. Well, uh, we will be warming up for our next conversation. Dave Nichols joins us monthly to talk all things urban planning, but a very special uh, conversation with him today, joined by a co-editor of a book uh, that he's um, put out. Um, Sophie Perillo will also be joining us and the book is called uh, Urban Australia and Post-Punk, Exploring Dogs in Space. And you've got um, a track to warm us up with there, Dylan. That's right. Yeah, going to take a track. From the ears, the um, the band on which the the fictional band in Dogs and Space is based on. This is their track, Scarecrow. Then we'll be joined by Dave and Sophie in just a few minutes. <laughs> I've been following 
That is Scarecrow by The Ears, one of the songs of very great relevance to our next interview. Yeah, and um, The Ears, there was a fictional band called Dogs in Space based on that band, and Dogs in Space is a film by Richard Lowenstein. It's a cult classic um, made 35 years ago, and I certainly watched it as a teenager in the 1990s, and even ended up in a share house with one of the women who played a party visitor role in the film. And I guess knowing someone in Dogs in Space in Melbourne, if you're over 40, is not a huge claim to fame because um, many of the people in the film and those who made it based the film Dogs in Space on real-life events and on a music and cultural scene that did exist in Melbourne in the late 1970s and 80s, and uh, which really does make it ripe for academic study. And that is what Dave Nichols and Sophie Perillo have done, have brought together. They're editors of a new book called Urban Australia and Post-Punk, exploring dogs in space. And they've commissioned articles from a whole range of people, including musician academics, urban planners and cultural historians. And Dr. Dave Nichols, of course, joins us monthly on the grapevine anyway to talk all things urban planning. But today is extra special because as co-editor of the book with Sophie Perillo, who's on the phone, um, means that we're going to have like a broader discussion than normal, Dave. And it's great to have you here. Thanks very much, Kalia. Hi, both of you. Um, yeah, thanks for Thanks for, for taking this seriously. Yeah, well, we are serious about it and we're hoping to hang out with you for, you know, longer than normal, a good half hour or something. So right. sit back, particularly if you love Dogs in Space or even if you don't, maybe you'll um, learn more about it than you knew before. And I guess it would be good to set the scene for people um, and not assume that everyone's seen Dogs in Space, the film. It feels like the context is important to this discussion before we get into kind of the detail of the various academic articles in your book. Maybe um, start there, Dave. I'd like to start with one little anecdote. When I was a in my early times as a, an announcer on Triple R, um, back when I had a program of my own in, I guess, 84 or something, um, there was a, a sign-up in the studio saying um, extras wanted for film about the 70s punk scene in, in Melbourne, you know, turn up wearing what you wore in 1978. Uh, and I was like, that's interesting, that sounds terrible, what a, what a bizarre idea, why would anyone do that, what, what, what's, what's going on in the world? Um, I didn't participate, but um, that, was my, that was the first time I was initiated into you know, the idea of this, this movie, Dogs, which became Dogs in Space. But you know what, I think it would be better if, if Sophie um, described the film itself. Like, Sophie's about as old as the film Sorry, Sophie, if that's like revealing your age, um, um, but about as old as the as the film. So she didn't she didn't grow up, you know. She didn't see the film when it came out or anything. Um, what, what? How would you describe the film, Sophie? Well, um, in terms of a brief synopsis, I guess it's, it's a film that is um, set in the late seventies in Melbourne. So it portrays the post punk scene, though it's not a documentary. It is a fictional film that tells the story of Sam from the years, played by Michael Hutchins. Um, my relationship with the film is much like anyone else, really, except that I didn't grow up. I wasn't there when it came out, but in the late 90s, I think, was when I saw it. So I was a teenager. And um, the thing that struck me about it was the... 
unusual nature of it on many levels, like the fact that it was set, it was made 10 years after it was set. It was um, young people living in share houses, playing in bands, and I just thought they were all cool and I wanted to be like that. And, you know, it's my, I'm in my formative years. I'm a huge fan of music and I'm a huge fan of Noah, people like Noah Taylor, who makes a brief appearance in it. And, yeah, I um, have had a, a, a long-term engagement with the film and, yeah, is that enough? Is that... No, that's... But you... <laughs> I mean, I can, I can go into, you know... You also... Um, bit, yeah. You worked with, with Sam Sajavka too in, when you were quite quite young too so you knew Sam on a sort of a kind of a professional basis I suppose as well when you were in your late teens right yeah well it's there there are a lot of serendipitous elements to this relationship I have with the film um and that's one of them Sam and I were acting in a in a play uh directed by Lynn Ellis it was actually a children's play and Lynn Ellis is a um, Melbourne theatre director um, and has knows everyone in that scene too. And then later, uh, David, when did I do that screening at... Oh, yeah, that was probably about 2015, 2014, 2015? Yeah. When you so were curating project, those movies. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> It's been a long, a long-term project. Uh, yeah, so I curated uh, an Australian film night called "From Carlton to the Yabba," and I screened um, a number of Australian films with local contemporary short films ahead of them, and also speakers, academic speakers such as David um, and Stuart Grant of Primitive Calculators who features in the film, playing live, um, attended one of those screenings where I screened the Dogs in Space. And he explained that his experience of watching the film again amongst a new audience that he wasn't aware of um, changed his perspective completely. And he was... One of the people involved in the film who subsequently disowned it <laughs> and wasn't happy with the portrayal of the scene, which is understandable because it's such a complex thing to capture. And when a filmmaker comes along and, and says, this is my perspective on everyone's lives at this time, and then, of course, everyone who actually was there, you know, is going to feel complex feelings about that and... and have their own perspective on it. So Richard Lowenstein's perspective is one thing. Um, and I guess the, the way that the film is quite... Uh, it's sort of like... I mean, people have said it's like a long film clip in a way, like a long music clip. And, of course, he, he was making film clips as well. So um, I think a lot of people found it uh, a little bit um, inadequate or a bit sort of not quite telling the full story or but that, that of course wasn't his job to do or his intention so then um people like Stuart Grant later watching the film amongst an audience of people you know younger people um who he hasn't been aware of in the in 
interested in the film. He says it's from a new perspective. And then his and his piece in in the book, his essay, uh, points at that sort of that complexity of historiography and the way that history is so subjective and um, that what's happened to the film over time is really interesting and, and much greater than the sort of petty, um, I mean, not to insult Stuart's initial <laughs> reaction to it, but um, that sort of focus on, like, the accuracy. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, yeah. that's true, Sophia, and I think that, I mean, that was certainly my response when I first saw the movie and whenever it came out, 80, 88, 89, that, I mean, I wasn't mm. horrified and that wasn't my scene to mm. be horrified about. I was too young to be around in the in the late 70s in that kind of situation but i um i certainly felt like serious things were being trivialized by the comedy elements of the movie and stuff but i think now i would say brave move to lowenstein um richard lowenstein i'm sort of calling him by his last name um to to make a movie so soon after the the original the events depicted that you know people could basically play people who'd been involved could play not necessarily themselves but um, each other, uh, and be convincing, you know, 19-year-olds because they're only, you know, 25-year-olds. And, um, you know, it's, it is actually a really brave thing to do and, you know, maybe sort of um, you, you could see... I, I certainly know why people were upset by the way that they were depicted or, you know, things that were there, but it wasn't, as you say, not a documentary. And um, it really, I think what it evokes ultimately is much greater than, than those kinds of, you know, the, the minor details, which, you know, I think the sort of the comedy points to the fact that the minor details aren't that important. That's just, you know, silly train spotting nonsense to, to worry about that kind of stuff. Overall, it really captures something, I think, that's um, worth exploring. And you obviously responded to... And I guess if you've um, co-edited a book with um, people writing in detail about aspects of the film and the, and the time and, you know, the era it was in, it is worth ex- exploring and the chapters are, are fascinating. Yeah, and I, th- I thought Stuart Grant's piece was, was quite, you know, so insightful in terms of the kind of fallibility of memory and, yeah. and he says something like, you know, I'd be, I have a totally different life if Dogs in Space hadn't have happened, even though he really, you know, didn't like the film for years and years. But what were you expecting when you set about pulling this book together and inviting people to contribute pieces to it? Did you expect there would be kind of a, a positive relationship with film or still kind of a fractured relationship with what it depicted at the time and, and I suppose what's kind of happened since? Um, I don't know, Sophie, do you have anything to say about that? Uh, yeah, um, I guess when we uh, wrote that article for the conversation, uh, the, the Friday essay, we, we discussed that a lot, um, the, the negative reactions about the film from people in the film or related to the film. Sam Suggestion was one of them. That story is a complex one. I don't feel like I have a place to speak on it too much, but you know, given the fact that it was his, it was a story, a, a very um, tragic incident in his life that's being depicted in the story. Um, there's a lot of sensitivity around that. I, I get that. So there's that aspect of Sam's um, perspective, and then there's the people like Stuart Grant. Um, Sam also had a similar realisation 
at a later stage about the film. So Sam is now, similar to Stuart, uh, re-embracing the film and, and realising its, its power or its um, meaning in the cu- cultural context. So, and also that that he too would, uh, um, what is it, sort of, to an extent to the film, so he, a lot of opportunities that he has had in the arts and um, in his career. And so, so I mean, you wrote that, I mean, that I guess... the article you wrote was around the 30th anniversary of, of the film, I think, um, and yeah, in yeah. it in it, you write that, you know, we, I guess the audience or um, is, is just catching up to dogs in space. Mm. Do you still mm. feel that, I, I guess, Dave? Or yeah, uh, look, well, I, I think that it's... Well, look, I think as, like, Sophie's experience and, and other people's experience subsequently has been that they've... Uh, a lot of people have taken it on face value. What we talk about in... I think it's in that conversation piece um, that Sophie mentioned or maybe somewhere else, um, a, a situation that I, I found fascinating was that I gave a little... or we gave a little seminar paper at um, a, a, a little event at Monash talking about dogs in space, and one of the... There was a a guy in the audience, a, a student, a Monash student, who came up to me at the end and said, every weekend, I, he said, I grew up in the Riverina, he must have been in his early 20s, I grew up in the Riverina, every weekend we would have a party and we'd watch Dogs in Space and we'd, like, we learnt the dialogue, you know, um, I, that always worries me when people say that, but anyway, <laughs> we learnt all the dialogue and it, you know, it became our kind of conversation there to each other. There wasn't much dialogue, so wouldn't it have taken oh, long? There, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of pretty um, iconic things in there, okay. Kalia. But um, <laughs> the... Um, <laughs> And, and then he said, and I, but I was really a, a surprised to hear that it was based on a true story. So he he thought it was a completely made up scenario in the in the first instance. I guess if he thought about it at all, but it's um, that I I love. I think that speaks to the quality of the movie, which by the way, and this is something I know Sophie and I have talked about quite a bit. It's it really stands up to repeat viewing, partly because it has that kind of cross cutting dialogue. It has things that go you know people talk over the top of each other, and there's all this kind of ambient conversation going on in the background and and so on so you can watch it again and again and you pick up on things that you just you can watch it i've watched it probably 10 times it's i mean honestly it's probably my favorite film ever Is so, it? you know i watched it again on the weekend mm. and revisiting it ahead of this conversation and i'm so glad i did but i actually didn't know and i had never noticed right at the beginning of the film when it says you know countdown and mm. then it goes Triple R F M, and I had never noticed that before. Yeah. That it references Triple R directly, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. They they play a little cart, as we used to. Do you still call them carts. Yeah, I call them carts, but that's that old term fashioned. still gets used. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, a little um, a little piece of music that was written by um, Stephen Cummings and Martin Armitage in the. You know, yeah, the very early eighties. Mm. Well, what's really interesting to me, I mean, I I actually only saw it for the first time over the weekend, and I've you know heard so much about it over the years, but for whatever reason, never managed to actually see it. Yeah. Um, but it kind of it felt so familiar, and you know, as numerous people um, you know say in the book, uh, that share share house could kind of be any number of share houses. We've all kind of been to it at various stages, but it felt so familiar. It felt so Melbourne, and almost like I'd sort of consumed what Dogs in Space 
is about without yeah. having actually seen the film and totally mm. getting that subculture that it represents. Do you, I mean, thinking about, I mean, you write about the sort of suburban um, status of Richmond at the time and then the fact that the film was very sort of deliberately placed there and that being an interesting thing in itself. How do you reflect on the role of Dogs in Space and that share house kind of style of living um, and why that still has some kind of resonance today, even though, you know, the makeup of suburbs has changed quite drastically yeah. and the music scene has changed in, in many ways as well. I mean, I think Sophie alluded to that a minute ago when she talked about the kind of the influence that it had on her at a at a time when she was open to being in, influenced in the, you know, in her teens that she would... Um, uh, there was a, there's a kind of a bizarrely, really, when you see what, what the way it's depicted. There's a kind of romanticisation, I think, um, of that lifestyle. Mm. Um, I'm certainly... You know, I don't. I don't actually know what um, what kids do these days. Whether they live in share houses, I think in a lot of t- a lot of times they do, though, right? It's still a thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, I don't know whether they they live that kind of extraordinarily reckless, excessive um, existence. I'm not sure. I think in some ways, I could be wrong, but I think kids these days are probably a bit cluier than those people. And I, there's that classic classic scene in, and there's so many classic scenes in that movie. But there's the one where. Sam Sam's mother brings him a cooked dinner and just like, you know, and yeah. washes his clothes and stuff and says, you know, doesn't your girlfriend wash it, you know, do any washing? Um, so there's there's that kind of and and another scene where the hippie guy in the house he loses his temper and he says, you know, they're just a bunch of, you know, spoiled entitled brats in this place. <laughs> and of course these people are living a life that is is possible to a certain degree. They're supported by, you know, they're um, but not, I mean, not all of them. I mean, sorry. To not all. But, um, yeah. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> um, I mean, what uh, is really interesting about the time that it's set um, compared to um, now, like what David's saying, you know, you're saying you don't know how young people I have no idea. Live, live <laughs> I don't want to know. But um, I, think, I think that one thing that's unique to Melbourne um, in a way, like compared to a lot of... Australian cities is that um, is the way that suburbs are geographically and also the way that uh, things to do with licensing and venues and um, a lot of culture, a lot of the music scene culture has come about because of that and, and that's why I guess we have that focus in the book or ended up having that, you know, there's a lot of contributors being in uh, urban history and, and those fields, um, I think that that sort of um, inner-city cheap rent, uh, you know, back in the, in the late 70s and the post-punk scene, you've got those two... Well, the way they, they talk about it, a lot of people relate to the film, talk about this sort of feuding between the middle class and the working class and the, the, the youth scenes, music scenes coming out of those groups and I guess what's interesting is that at you know historically in, in that time there's you know obviously no social media no internet and all that um, they are very dependent on that geographically centered community and True. and that's what it, I mean it's interesting what emerged from that and what what is still with us from that evolution of the yeah, music culture. That's true. And yeah, um, I guess when I say yeah, not everyone. I mean, there were there were. I think what Lowenstein is is sort of commenting on in a way like 
indirectly is that uh, presence of that class issue and um, you know a lot of them were from very he's pointing out you know a lot of these people are living this sort of trash life or this uh, grungy life um, with having this very privileged background and then there are others who don't and definitely had the opposite and where in the punk scene that sort of there was a really divisive um, you know, there was a, a position that they would have to take and I think that the, from what I've heard and what, what uh, people have discussed in interviews is that uh, the, the working class punks tended to be anti-celebrity and um, anti-success and sort of uh, the opposite of like um, bands like what was portrayed in the movie The Ears um, being striving for success. So yeah, that's, that's all... That's true. And the other thing, I mean, just to go back to what you were saying a second ago, Sophie, I think people were networked in the in the late 70s, early 80s through things like Triple R. So there was, as they still are to it, but, you know, now there's there's a whole extra layer on top of that of social media and stuff. But there was a, a kind of an, an underground communication network in a way, which, by the way, they didn't really have in Sydney because they had Double J, but Double J was a youth network. And that was so. That was um, that. Whereas Triple R, I think, in the late seventies, early eighties, was very inner city in its focus, and that was where that was where things were seen to be happening, and that's that's how it was. Um, it was kind of depicted, and that was the culture. Whereas I don't think Double J was like that. Isn't it so interesting, though? I mean, I'm thinking about Caroline Hawkins' chapter in the book now about DIY house venues and yeah. how that sort of word of mouth kind of you have to know someone to get into this place and find where it is because you shockingly know, elitist, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, but it's still in a way. I mean, you know, people might find out via you know messenger app or something like that. But there's still that kind of communal means by which people kind of who are in the scene or tangentially part of the scene need to kind of navigate that to, to get to the cool places and, and experience music in these informal um, DIY kind of settings, not in an established venue. And that's that's why we asked Carolyn to do that article there was because we, we saw that location, that um, similarity between the, the house parties that you see in Dogs in Space. That obviously, sometimes you can't even really be certain whether you're in a pub or you're in someone's yeah. living room for some of those music, um, those scenes where people are playing music. And... So there's, you know, not that much of a distinction, really. Uh, and, you know, I think Carolyn brings that out really, really well in her, her chapter. And, and yes, as you, as you say, that's, that's one of the ways in which we, we do kind of locate a, an ongoing culture that's, that for whatever, however, has kept going for the last few decades. Yeah, and I'd love to um, speak a little bit about the the music in in the film, in Dogs in Space, and I'll remind um, people, if you've just tuned in, we're talking about a new book called Urban Australia and Post-Punk, Exploring Dogs in Space. Dogs in Space is a film that came out in the 80s, uh, and um, the editors of the book are Dave Nichols, who's with us, and Sophie Perillo, and um, there's a lot to cover, I guess, um, in the next part of our discussion but I'd love to kind of go into this next track um, and hear a little bit about Lisa McKinney's chapter on Shivers, um, the song written by Roland S. Howard. Um, who's best placed to do that? I feel like, you know, I should have done my homework before the conversation. Are you best placed, Dave or Sophie, to speak about that chapter? Because I think it's um, we can extraordinary. We speak about it. Yeah, we can both do that. All right, Dave, you start. Huh. Well, all right. <laughs> um, so... 
you know, uh, Lisa McKinney is, of course, a... Um, she was a, a member of um, the... the uh, no, I'm going to... I'm drawing a blank. Taipan Tiger Girls. Tiger Girls with, mm-hmm. uh, with Ellie Olsen. So she has that kind of link, and she obviously has a, a huge amount of knowledge. And, you know, but once again, she's... Um, like Sophie, she's, she's younger than, you know... Um, she is actually, you know, under 50 um, and not part of that original scene but obviously has a huge amount of knowledge and understanding of that. And she... Um, she asked to to write about that, and um, she really she really went in deep to um, some of the, you know, some of the, you could almost say minutiae of the of the whole story of you know when and when and where and how Roland Howard wrote that song, which was like a lot of the best songs in the world, was completely throwaway, uh, completely written in you know half an hour I think, and and also like m- many of the great songs thoroughly misunderstood in the sense that uh, it was a you know, everybody takes it and particularly because of the way Nick Cave sang it in The Boys Next Door, you know, everybody took, many people took it as being kind of um, this um, dramatic, overblown declaration, whereas in fact it's you know, the satirical, I think, apart from anything, you know, there's all those lines, when you when you look at them on the page, you see that it's actually um, a lot more of a... Um, um, it's. I don't know if it's meant to be funny, but it's not meant to be. You know, some kind of. You know, no, it's a. It's a. It's a. It's talking about teenage angst. It's not an, a, an, a, a declaration of teenage angst, mm. and um, it quickly became really. Um, to talk about an overused word, but it quickly became very iconic um, from a from early on. And I think Lisa says this in the chapter. Like within a year or two of that song being released, people were doing cover versions of it, and then it. It ended up being a hit single in I don't know when the mid '90s by the Screaming Jets, which is you know, but totally one more of those things that yeah. you just you just go. I can't. Even, I still can't believe that happened, and it was over 20 years ago. And it features twice in Dogs in Space. Yeah, that's right. Which is so interesting. There's the Nick Cave the version Nick Cave sings, and then the um, Marie Hoy version, which yeah. is performed live, which we'll hear um, just a bit of, taken from the soundtrack now. Oh, 
the Marie Hoy version of Roland S. Howard's Shivers, which appears in Dogs in Space relatively kind of halfway through the film, and it's a, a turning point in more ways than one in the film as well. And um, we played that because we are midway through a discussion with David Nichols and Sophie Perillo about their co-edited book, Urban Australia and Post-Punk Exploring Dogs in Space. And I mean, as I said, I watched this film sort of for the first time over the weekend, and it was actually a, a great experience to be reading this book at the same time and having all the gaps filled in with people who were there and talked about, um, you know, certain scenes that reference things that actually happened and the fictionalisation and what they kind of think about it now. But in terms of a, a film itself, I mean, that does happen at quite a, a crucial turning point, even though in many ways the film doesn't have a plot, so to speak. I and mean, there's kind of a narrative arc, but which you kind of realise at the end. But what's your sense of this as a film? I mean, it's one of your your favourite film, Dave and, and Sophie as well. I mean, um, as a film, do you feel like it does stack up as kind of something that you can very much get something out of and relate to if you don't have that connection to Melbourne and the music scene? Sophie? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it, just, it, it works on so many levels. Um, I mean, I, I'm just, I, I just started reflecting on that song, Shivers, the performance by Marie Hoy. Uh, that is an interesting... Um, cinematic decision I think like like you were saying it doesn't the narrative is sort of um, it, it doesn't the film doesn't follow a traditional sort of you know uh, Hollywood cinema narrative arc or, or dramatic arc necessarily but there are some poignant moments in the film that where the soundtrack is really important mm. and um, there's the, the Endless Sea by Iggy Pop 
at uh, the. I don't want to spoil. I don't want to spoil. <laughs> but there's, you know, that's I, I a think really if it's 35 years old, like... you can't spoil it, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> People have had a chance. Oh, it's not like it just came out and you're trying to avoid Instagram or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I'm being so overly careful what I say with everything. But um, uh, there's, there's many ways I could pick up. But yeah, um, yeah, so. The soundtrack, just the way the film is like um, so much like a video clip, a music clip from my perspective, um, where there are, you know, I mean, that, that's such a varied genre, I didn't call that, but yeah, it's, um, it's quite, you know, visually stylised and um, whilst also capturing this kind of gritty, um, environment and, and grungy elements. Um, but yeah, I think that because of that, um, I, I, yeah, I definitely, it's definitely not essential to, to have a background in it at all. I think that, I mean, I certainly didn't when I saw it uh, very much at all. Um, I don't think I even knew it was a true story, like, you know, like they were talking mm-hmm. about earlier with that fan at the, at the um, conference. But yeah, um, and in terms of fandom, I mean, uh, it's an interesting concept because um, whenever I talk to people about this book, um, it's assumed that I'm a massive fan of the film, which I am, but it's like it's, it's gone so much deeper than that. Um, myself as a fan of the film, as a teenager, I'm very different now and I have a lot of... It's just grown well, well beyond that, if that makes sense. Um can we talk a little bit about the actual building? Um, so the the film Dogs in Space was set in and around um, 18 Berry Street, Richmond. And uh, for those that don't know that area, I mean, look, the it is an academic treatment, um, this book um, that you've, you've got, and there's so many nuggets in there. But I guess... Um, thinking about the heritage listing of that building now, it's not just heritage listed because it was the side of Dogs in Space being filmed, but for its other values. Can you talk a little bit about it, Dave? Because yeah. I understand people see the film and then go and find that walk past yeah. and have a look. I, I mean, um, so I wrote the chapter with James Lesh about the um, sort of the heritage uh, aspects of the, of the house. And one thing that's important about the house is it's rare to find a two-storey uh, wooden building of that vintage. So it, it has kind of unique qualities of, of its own and the original, the guy that built it claimed, and I don't, I don't really know the veracity of this claim, but claimed to have founded Bendigo by finding gold in that, in that area. Um, so he, he was important in, in himself anyway, as, you know, sort of like, um, in inverted commas, pioneer um, of early Victoria. But, um, yeah, the, so, but then the fit, the, the house has has come to be. I'm going to use the I word again. Um, iconic in its own, you know, because because of its role in the film. Uh, I, if I remember rightly, um, Richard Lowenstein said that the main reason, like the two reasons why he wanted to use the house in the film, one was that it was the house where he lived with Sam Sajavka and some of the other people who were depicted in the movie. Uh, so that was one thing, and the other thing was because it's at the top of a T intersection. Uh, you can get a camera in there, uh, you know, on a crane and do that amazing uh, first... The first glimpse that you see of the house is an amazing sort of shot that you get of um, uh, honing in on the on the house. So it's it's good on that front as well. But, um, 
Yeah, it's um, so it's you know it's just in some ways I'm, I'm not saying I think it's I think it's quite an impressive um, house in itself. You might you might look at it twice if you're walking down Berry Street, but why would you walk down Berry Street? It's just one of those many hundreds of little Warren-like um, side streets in Richmond, and um, uh, yet it um, it has this kind has has come to have this kind of quality, and we have a few. Um, or at least one chapter that I can think of that talks specifically about um, you know pilgrimages to the house. Uh, we have um, and there's and then there's you know as Sophie said there's that kind of sense of the the kind of share house party kind of stuff that is obviously accommodated by that kind of a building in all kinds of ways. So um, it's uh, it's I mean it's a really nice looking house. It has it has its, its interesting twentieth century history too. You know we actually located. Um, James and I located the people who. There's a lot of instances when writing a book like this, or writing bits of book, a book like this, where you, you know, you you think I could go down that, you know, particular line of inquiry, or or do these people just want to be left alone? Maybe mm. they do, and and you you err on the side of you know, let's not harass uh, innocent members of the public for your own arcane <laughs> interest. So James and I, we found the people who owned the house at the time that the um, the the events set in the that the events depicted in the film occurred, so we know who they are, and we decided, oh, look, let's not let's let's not cause them hassle. Ditto. Um, I made contact uh, through mutual friends with the people who own the house now, who were really delightful about and offered to let us come and have a look, um, you know, take photos, whatever. They didn't mind, but I also felt. I think we both felt. Um, Sophie and I that it was a little bit intrusive like I'm sure they get enough crap from people you know probably banging on the door at 2am you know um, and so I never thought of that yeah, yeah I, think that I think it definitely happens. would happen and, wouldn't it and, and people listening don't do it um, yeah so it's uh, so we kind of you know a bit of arm's length there yeah. And I mean, thinking about your decision to put a book like this together, which is sort of documenting the film itself and, and what it means to people today, what are you hoping this will serve? I mean, it is, you know, essentially kind of like an academic book, but it's not like a standard academic book in other ways as well. I mean, there's anecdote, there's storytelling, some of it's sort of quite poetic in its language. Um, what do you sort of hope comes out of having this book out there and, and, in, and, and what role it might serve, I suppose, in years to come as, you know, Dogs in Space continues to be memorialised in different ways? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, Dylan. Uh, um, and I guess from my point of view, Sophie might have something else to say, but I, I feel like the it was a couple of things. Um, one was to kind of gather together some testimony from people who were involved in the film, which the first half of the book really is that kind of testimony. Um, so it's, it is, you know, whether, it's, whether you class it as anecdote, in any case, it's kind of like shorter essays by people who were in some way involved, either in the film or in the scene, you know, the little band scene or the, uh, the time, just, just at the time. So we have, you know, Peter Farnan, for instance, um, who's more recent, more better known as being in Boom Crash Opera, talks about, you know, how he knew those people um, in the, and how he um, recorded the ears, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, then there's uh, and people like uh, Jules Taylor, who used to work here at Triple R as the um, volunteers coordinator, um, and who has a role in the in the film, uh, two roles in the film really, because uh, she's she has a screen presence and she also worked behind the scenes. So there's there's all of those kinds of people who I felt look. I actually think that this movie 
So I don't know if you've noticed, but and I think Sophie's the same. We could talk about this forever. So I don't know if you've got forever, but um, it really could happen. But um, it's it's the kind of thing where um, people have all kinds of connections and all kinds of um, you know a range of of connections to this scene, this time, and then to the film as well. That makes it all. Um, it's really fascinating. And people, as um, Sophie said, kind of. Um, people like Jules, I think her, she had a, a, a sh- um, sadly short-lived music career after after that that I think sprang directly from her her connection to Richard Lowenstein. So there's there's those kinds of things as well. It's all it's a, it's amazing how you know the, the film was a springboard for all kinds of for people in all kinds of ways. I've completely yeah, forgotten I mean, that, what we were talking a, about. Good, good. No, Sophie. no. I mean, I I think that's a really. Uh, good point David I think that the way the book will be received is on so many levels um, it's an academic text it's unlike most cinema texts it's not a uh, it's not a, a book about the production or about you know like most film books are um, it it fulfills that uh, role of um, documenting culturally the cultural context for the film and what emerged from it. One of my favourite chapters is Simona Castrican's mm. chapter um, because it's. So I also I, I thought personal. we're out of time. We didn't have time to talk about it, but please do because I also it's a standout. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's um, it's and I think this is what I love about what came out of us putting this together is that we 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 got chapters like Simona's, like Stuart Grant's, that are really personal. Simona's um, discussing the. Um, her uh, growing, you know, coming of age and <laughs> learning about music and music culture in Melbourne and it's just so heartfelt and so honest and so we have these really personal autobiographic pieces uh, amongst more academic pieces and I think that uh, merging of those is something that I would really proud of about the book I think because it started off we didn't start out with that intention necessarily um, I think it just came about and it felt like it felt natural to go in that direction uh, we initially started off talking with Richard Lowenstein a lot about this in the early stages um, and he ended up um, making his own book um, which is really which good by the called way Archi- yeah which is called Archiving Dogs in Space so that's more of a a text on the film itself and the production and the and the photos and um, and everything. So it's a really different piece, and I think that it's sort of interesting the way that that. Um, came, I mean, I guess we were all, all talking in the early stages. We didn't quite know what the book would be, uh, so we had a lot of discussions early on with Lowenstein, and then uh, I guess it evolved into what it is now, um, which is much broader than than just documenting that. Mm. The film itself and and surrounding things, but yeah. So I guess that's what um, the, you know. The function is now is like just uh, that cultural context that's quite quite far-reaching and complex. I, I just think I, I think that's all true. I also think it's funny that we've just started calling him Lowenstein. Um, yeah. He does have a <laughs> he has a first name, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's right. He's so yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely correct. It it took on a life of its own as it, as we went on with it over mm-hmm. quite a long period of time. And oddly enough, you say, Kalia, that it's, it doesn't have stuff about the, the film itself per se. It doesn't really have much about that. And when I think about the book, 
all through the, the duration of editing that book, we were waiting on a chapter by somebody who I know quite well who was um, interested in doing a chapter about the censorship of the film, that the, the, mm. that the film was given an R rating. And ultimately that person wasn't able to deliver that chapter. And and even though it was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of angst in a way that, you know, certainly I don't think it, I don't think it lacks uh, for that because I think um, it, it took on a different kind of direction the way that we were looking at it anyway. So it would have um, stuck out like a sore thumb a bit anyway to have that chapter in there. So, yes, it is. And, and of course, during the time of us working on this book, um, the Richard Lowenstein sort of um, the book that he did with others um, came out as well. So that covers a lot of that stuff. Well, congratulations um, and uh, on the book, um, David and Sophie. Thanks for spending so much time with us on Triple R. Um, it's called Urban Australia and Post Punk: Exploring Dog- Dogs in Space, edited by David Nichols and Sophie Perillo. It's been really enlightening having so much time with you this morning. Um, it's out through um, Palgrave Macmillan. Through Palgrave, and can I say it's available in Melbourne now? Uh, Sophie Lulu's will have it. Yes, this week. Yes, um, that's right. Yeah, I. I will, um, yes, Lulu's will have some in stock later in the week. And, yeah. and Rocksteady uh, will Metropolis, have some. Oh, Metropolis, we had it think. Yeah. Oh, sorry. And I'm sorry, I'm talking over you, which is... Sorry. Go on. Oh, no, I, I, yeah, I'm not sure. I just know that, yeah, we'll have copies in, in Lulu's. In and you know what? And as you wait for these to the, the book to come in stock for those that really want to get their hands on it, um, watch the film again. It's fun to see yeah. it again if you haven't, or if you haven't seen it, um, it is very available. Um, right. Dogs in space, and urge you to have a look. I actually um, in, invited my um, almost fifteen-year-old daughter to watch it with me over the weekend, forgetting that it had an R rating, and she aborted halfway. So it's not for everybody. Self-censorship. Um, yeah, well done. I'm, I had off to it. <laughs> Because when I went through the film, I went, oh, that's right. It's probably good that she went to her room. Um, it was the chaos of it more than the themes, actually, that was like a bit jolty for her. But, um, you know, I'm sure she'll come back to it at some point. Um, thank you so much. It's been really great. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.